for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Here's the question. Do elk act the same from different parts of North America? What about the hunting strategies? Is there a base set of techniques and strategies that will work anywhere? Well, y'all, on today's show, we have special guests Lee Hauk and Mark Meredith with us as we take that discussion all the way to Canada to find out all the similarities as well as any differences from our northern elk hunting brothers. Our topic for today's shows, elk hunting strategies. Is the game the same? That discussion, our Elk Bros shout-outs and questions from our awesome Elk Bros mailbox. So, my friends, pull up a chair, adjust your volumes just right, and welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by ElkBros.com, with your host, Gilbert Ornelas, and Elk Hunting Coach Joe Gilly. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Hello there, everyone. If it's your first time with us, glad to have you. Hope you enjoy the show. And as always, for those blue collar hunters following our show and grinding it out with us every week. Welcome back to Elk Camp. I'm Gilbert Ornelas, the host of your show, coming to you from Spring, Texas. And that's right, we've got the leader of the Venezuelan Mafia in the house from Katy, Texas. Mr. Luis Gonzalez is in the house. We got the Las Cruces Ridge Runner in the house. One of our elk hunting coaches, Mr. Mm. Eric Aragon. And from Cimarron, New Mexico, that's right, we got the ninja Leroy Chavez in the house and WWJGD. What would Joe Gillia do's in the house? <laughs> and joining us tonight, a couple of our far northern brothers up in Alberta, Canada. From the two to the arrow broadheads, we want to welcome Mr. Lee Hawk and Mark Meredith. Welcome, guys. Welcome, welcome to the Joe show. show. So, so did we get that right? Is it Alberta or is it? Alberta, yeah. Oh, awesome, man. Yeah, way cool. And, uh, uh, you know, before we get going, because Gilbert, man, just loves baseball. So does this other guy up here, Eric Aragon. They love that too. And got a couple of ballers, huh? Yeah, I don't know about that. We No, now, dude, I've gone to both of y'all's Instagram, man, and I see that little white ball flying all over the place, man. If anybody might Red Sox. Because, <laughs> let's see, Lee, I, I believe you've got about an 89 mile per hour toss out of you. 
Is that, is that what you throw? That fastball? Sure. Dang. <laughs> That's a nice I was going to say, you know, my numbers are similar, but I got a point in between the two. Mine would be like 8.9. <laughs> hey, guys, welcome to the show. And you've been with us already before we started the recording. You saw a little back end. You got uh, you got a dose of the bros, man. Our group is a little bit on the – we have fun. We have a good time. We really mm. do. And uh, just enjoy yourself with us. Uh, if you have something that, you know, you need to stop us and go, whoa, whoa, wait a second. That's absolutely wrong. You do it, man. Just, just let us know. Okay. Yeah. We're, Except we're when it's talk. me, when it's me, you, you cannot correct me. <laughs> just, just, just do it with an accent. He's used to That's it. That's right. There you go. I may, I may let it, I may let it fly that way. Yeah. Lewis, 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 you are Lewis. wrong. Lewis, you're all wrong. <laughs> like that, man. So let's, let's talk about your, you know, your tooth of the arrow broadheads. We want to start out with that with the company that you guys represent because even though we're talking to a couple of guys, some brothers up in Canada, you guys actually, um, the product is made in the U.S., right? Yeah, it's actually an American company. Um, I think Mark's the only Canadian pro staff and I'm, uh, I'm the only Canadian employee. I mean, there's only two employees, so that's not setting the bar that high, but um, <laughs> it, it's an entirely American company through except for us. So, so uh, hey, but, and if you don't mind me asking, Joe, before we go there, tell us about you guys. I mean, how does yeah, the okay. Tooth of the Arrow came to be? You know, who are you? Where you come from? What You know, how does all this adventure of the Tooth of the Arrow came to be? And you can lie because we won't check. We, we know that. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, well, I started hunting with my dad when I was 12 or 13 years old, picked up bow hunting. He didn't bow hunt. He was friends you with You guys like 15 or 16 now or what? <laughs> Four years ago? Close. Um, I'm 22. Uh, there you go. I told you it wasn't much for no, <laughs> but uh, so I awesome. took up I took up uh, just bow tuning and arrow building and bowstring building and and that stuff. Uh, and my dad was friends with Mark, who needed work on his bow, and introduced me to Mark, and we became friends like that. And then uh, with the tooth of the arrow thing, I uh, I was on their pro staff because I just really loved the head. I had a few good experiences with them hunting the elk and whitetail out here with them and uh there was just a there was a job opportunity part time with them and totally remote and it just worked out and that's what led me here today. Awesome man. Awesome. That's the short version on him. Mark your turn, bro. Yeah, um myself, um I've been hunting for probably about thirteen, fourteen years here now. Um started off with rifle and just enjoyed the archery a lot more. Not that I still don't rifle hunt, I still do. It's just a love archery, and I do about ninety percent archery hunting. Um, and we tell every, we tell everybody, Mark, bows are for hunting, rifles are for killing. <laughs> yeah, the Indians believe that too. <laughs> so, so I, I beg to differ, man, because I, I talk to a lot of people yeah. hunt elk with the rifle, and I got a higher percentage than them so far. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and you hunting with the right guys, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how Lee said, I, I met him through his dad, and I, I really wanted to up my game on my archery. I was buying stuff from, you know, Cabela's Bow, you know, Bass Pro, and 
I wanted to up my game in regards of customizing my bow and really knowing knowing my stuff. Uh, I was missing missing elk at 30 yards, missing elk at 50 yards, other animals, and I was just like, "What's going on here? It's, it's clearly not the bow. It's me. I need to I need to I need to change my game here." And, and Lee Lee definitely helped me out with that, and uh, that's how we we're friends now. Unfortunately, became really good friends. Yeah, now we're good friends. <laughs> so, so, so do you who, guys own Tooth of the Arrow Broadheads? No, okay. no, no. Uh, I'm, I'm just like I'm the only employee really that other than the people at the factory. Uh, but no, I don't own Tooth of the Arrow. So who's who the, who came up with the broadhead? So the boss right now, his name is Luke Allison. His dad uh, designed the broadhead, and who he's now retired, and Luke totally runs the show. Okay, so you've worked for Tooth of the Arrow Broadheads. Yeah, and I'm and I'm pro staff. That's all. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Cool. And cool. now, Mark, aren't you a an elk hunting guide as well? Uh, I don't elk hunt. I don't guide. I just honestly spend probably close to 80, 80 days minimum a year chasing elk. Oh, what do you do for a real job, brother? <laughs> yeah, he says uh, I'm minimum. A firefighter in oh, Calgary. awesome, man. Yeah. Awesome. So you get quite a bit of time off. Yeah, we do. Gotcha. <laughs> Appreciate well the job that you do for sure. Oh yeah. Did y'all pick up on the eighty minimum? Yeah, eighty minimum. days minimum. Dude, we're doing something yeah, wrong, bro. Yeah, I know. I know. But another job. My wife lets me do that. I, I Hey man, you know, you need to keep I, her around, brother. Yeah. I got one of those yeah. that would do, let me do it too, but I gotta make a living too, man. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, you know, you think about like when I, I start in September, September one, and by the yeah. time I get done, it's Decent. December and then do some cow hunts later on after that. So yeah, you, you plug in some hours real quick, get to know mm-hmm. these critters. So that's really cool. You know, because Mark, you're seeing the full circle of these critters, man. You get to see them at all different, um, modes and times of year and behavior. So that's, uh, that's going to be really cool when we get into the subject. Now we've talked about you two, but there's a third character we really got to talk about and that's the broadhead itself. So tell us about the broadhead, the vision behind the broadhead. And if you want to show it and stuff like that while you're doing it, um, feel free. Y'all need to relax, man. Y'all just like. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and for us, are you guys elk hunting in Alberta? Is that where y'all are hunting or are y'all hunting out of, out of, uh, Manitoba, uh, not Manitoba, but, uh, up out of the Alberta region or out of Calgary or, or what? Yeah. Basically from, I'd say central Alberta all the way to southern Alberta, right to the border. Awesome. And that, that's uh-huh. farmland bulls most of the time, most of it, isn't it? Yeah. And I do a little bit of hunting up more in northern Alberta. Uh, oh, cool. Cool. And some whitetail hunting I would gather as well. Yeah, a lot of whitetail hunting. We, we have it all. Some giant white too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You guys, yeah. I'm super envious of a, a very big, uh, thing on my bucket list come up to Northern Canada and, and shoot a, uh, an Alberta absolute giant white tail because they're huge bodies, man. So yeah. we're going to get in, we're going to get into talking about that phase of it too, about, um, about when people want to or the availability of hunting up there in Canada here in a little bit. But I, I really want to hear about your broadhead, man. Sure. Well, what you guys are just talking about leads us into it really well. Um, what led me to Tooth of the Arrow, I shot them for two years before I ever even was on pro staff. Um, what led me to them is that, like you guys say, the whitetails, even the bodies of the whitetails up here are so big and dense. 
you need something that can punch through a lot. And I'm just the kind of guy who I don't like the risk of hitting bone. You know, you shoot a mechanical, they can do a great job, but um, animals move. We make bad shots, right? So Absolutely. I'm fixed blade through and through, and uh, really the vision behind the broadhead from the bosses was just to keep, make it a simple, proven design. And the biggest piece behind the tooth of the arrow broadhead is the weight distribution of the head. And that's why they fly. They, they really are one of the best uh, fixed blade, uh, best flying fixed blade broadheads on the market because we keep, depending on the model, you pick about 90% of the weight in line with the arrow. And that uh, doesn't leave any room for your blades to be steering your arrow. So uh, if you can combine mechanical broadhead accuracy with uh, the durability and reliability of a fixed blade, that's, that's what we were going for. And I think that's what we've done. Are they single bevel or dual bevel broadheads? Dual. They're dual bevel. That's actually my Ibex right there on your screen. Oh, wow. Check him out, dude. Where'd you kill him at? Spain. That was in Spain uh, just before COVID. Oh, sweet. Man, that's, that's awesome. a Nubian Ibex, correct? You got you got to come, uh, uh, come to New Mexico. We've been to Mexico, too. This uh, this deer up here is Mexican. That's Coos deer. No, no. no. New, New Mexico. Mexico. New Mexico. New Mexico. Oh, New Mexico. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's it's not new and it's not Mexico. So <laughs> New Mexico. I've come hunt elk in New Mexico, too. Well, we've got a huge herd of those uh, in the Florida mountains in Deming, New Mexico. Man, they call it the toughest. They call it the rock. It's They call it the hardest hunt. In North America, and uh, it's an amazing thing to watch. To if you ever get a chance to get out there, I've gone out and uh, spotted for people. It's unbelievable, man. And it, when a guy can take one down with a with a bow, it's that's putting something down. That's a real hunter. So I've never had the guts to even give it a shot. To be honest with you, so I dig the four blade design too, fellas. I shot a Sweet. four blade. I've shot a four blade muzzy for years. And I mean years and I don't even, I guess the reason why I stopped shooting a four blade muzzy was just cause, uh, I thought the three blades were going to be better, but I'm telling you to this day, I could grab a four blade muzzy out of one of my packs and shoot a deer and kill him stone dead with it, you know? Um, but I, I absolutely love the four blade design. So why the four blade design boys? Uh, without getting too much into the, the science or whatever you want to call it of it. I would just challenge anybody to take a four blade and a three blade and go out and shoot the old sign on the end of your road and see what the hole looks like. The, uh, <laughs> yeah, the four blade, it punches like it punches a square through. It doesn't punch three nice little knife cuts through. It punches a square out of it and you get bigger blood trails and, uh, yeah, they're just deadly. Go test it for yourself. Uh, man, so, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm fixing the, I'm fixing to order me a uh, pair. Do y'all make them at 150 grains? All the way up to 175. That's what we're right. shooting here, actually. So, yeah. so here's a question I want to ask on on this, and and you guys can help me out with it. Is that so? You talk about really the reason that you have this is for Plan B. In other words, you know, you're not aiming for bone, but if you hit bone, you want to be able to get penetration, yeah. right? You know, from what I listen to, and we've been doing a lot of talking about this, 
you know, a lot of, there's this thing about a two blade being able to get more penetration because it's less drag that goes through when it hits something like that to where when you go three blade, it doesn't have a whole lot of difference, but will a four blade when it's hitting bone going out decrease penetration because of the amount of drag? Yeah. That, that's just the question. Yeah, no, straight up, uh, it will. You're yeah. going to get better penetration on a bone with a two blade than a four yeah. blade. And, uh, I yeah, guess all we can say regarding our company is stay tuned. Yeah. Yeah. Stay yeah. Tuned. And, and, <laughs> and that's awesome because, you know, I, I really like your answer. Um, uh, and that's kind of where my questions were going to go, right? I mean, the, you know, if, if you look at the 12 factors of Crap, Dr. Ash, thinking like an engineer. <laughs> if, if you look at the 12 factors of Dr. Ashby, there, there's, there's the things that you got going. I'm with you 100% fixed blade for sure. Um, I do like the more cutting area that you have with four blades. Now, the single bevel and the two blade, uh, for heavy bone threshold is definitely better than, than four blades. But when I look at this broadhead and I think of, the um the crossbow that my daughter shoots i think this broadhead is going to be an absolute lethal broadhead because with the with the crossbow the amount of the amount of force that goes behind those crossbows is going to be sustained especially for a a a broadhead that is made in a single piece like this and so structurally strong it's going to be perfect for that and the other thing is like when um, you know, when, when a broad hit like this makes contact, um, because of the amount of blades it has, it will immediately stop rotating on contact. And that's probably going to slightly reduce your ability to penetrate. Again, if you're shooting a crossbow, doesn't matter, right? Yeah. But so, yeah, unless so you hit something solid. When when they talk about having a square though, Luis, when they talk about that, to me, it'll be a hole like this. Yeah. When, but the reason <laughs> you, that you, you saw on your square instead of the three is because it does get a little bit of torque when it goes. It in. will. It will have a little bit, but it will stop. Like the arrow would immediately stop rotating as soon as it has contact because it just. It doesn't, it doesn't have the, the, the single bevel is what's going to allow you to continue to make that rotation. So right? that, that broadhead in a single bevel might continue to rotate is what you're saying. Single bevel and two blade, I think. And two blades. There's, yeah. there's pretty much no argument that a two blade single bevel broadhead is the best penetrating head that mm-hmm. can be bought. I don't think yeah. that, but, other than a field point. But yeah. so let me, they talk about Dr. Ashby's. And I'm going to talk about Dr. Bros, man, in that, you know, one of our things that we're really big about is, number one, getting two holes. Um, and number two, so that we have a great blood trail. So the idea of creating that wound that is going to give us that blood trail, um, where a single, where a two-blade single bevel goes in and possibly, and this is something that we have a discussion about, because it is so sharp and it goes in and creates that vertical, it can kind of keep, you know, kind of close up and keep things from going out. Um, whereas even if I did not get a, of course we want two holes because we want that air to go out of those lungs. We just want to deflate it. But if I get that, four blade into that animal with that kind of wound, 
that should still create a great blood trail or a better blood trail. Well, what so it does, what it does is it knocks a hole in that animal right. going in, right? And you can tell. I was looking on their webpage. You can tell the wound cavity when it starts. It spreads the hide off of. So you get a big tear in that hide. Well, as soon as it tears the hide, the hide doesn't have room to cover any of those sharp right. slits. This is a this is an old muzzy trocar right here, and I shot a lot of whitetails with it, and I've shot some elk with it. The thing I love about this broadhead is on entrance, it tears the hide open, and I mean, as soon as you hit an animal with it, you see blood fly off of him. Right? My son killed a 155 inch whitetail this year, and when he hit the animal in the video. You see blood just blow up, right? And I mean, that's huge when you hunt in a place like we do in South Texas to have a really good blood trail because it is brutal down there to have to go track something, right? And I love that when I, what I saw, especially on y'all's webpage was you had that big tear in the hide, right? And that means that's from that, that three or that four blade punching a hole from get go right in the middle of it. And, and look, it's going to be even more devastating on the way out, dude. It blows all that out. So <clears throat> I'm a fan. I, I, you know, looking at the broadhead, like Luis said, you know, we, we're more in going more and more towards the single bevel. And listen, fellas, you're talking to a guy who's very staunch about his setup. And I have used the same setup, the same way with Joe for many, many years. And I've killed hundreds of animals with a, with a daggum, uh, you know, full metal jacket era and this, this broadhead here, and there was a one that was made in Texas by a guy named Terry Hartcraft. That's, uh, that when you look at your broadhead, like the Stinger design broadhead y'all have versus the Hartcraft, it looks a lot like that, right? But it is sleek, but it opens big wounds when it comes in and when it comes out. And it has a scoop tail in the ferrule where it actually blows those flaps open. So we get better, you know, better penetration and better uh, wound cavity. Yeah, so. Luis, bring that up again because you see the same thing on theirs and bring up the one yeah. where you can see it. On, this is the part, guys, that really blows my mind is that this broadhead is milled out of a single, single piece of carbon, piece of carbon steel. It's awesome. And that, that just literally wound, blows my mind. Look at that wound cavity, man. When you go down towards the bottom. Yeah, but I, yeah, wanted, yeah. I wanted to see this. So that that's not just – that is attached to the steel that it's been milled out of, correct? Yeah. Yeah, that's just before they cut it off, and then it goes to heat treating. So awesome. I, I just got – I mean, that process has to be more labor-intensive than some of these other processes. Yeah. yeah. It's, well, well, most blades are – most blades are replaced. No. Yeah, and, you know, we get a lot of – we get some flack about not having replaceable blades. No. I don't I, want them replaceable. Exactly. I don't get yeah. that argument. You know, we, we make a sharpener for these broadheads. I've shot – in Mexico, I shot three animals with the same head um, because I sharpened it in between. Yeah. And when you have a, a broadhead that you can replace the blades – they're being held together by no more than one or two little screws. Right, a little ferrule too. Yeah, you want to shoot that into an elk's shoulder? I don't know. I've never understood that argument. Well, I I actually don't want to shoot anything into an elk's shoulder. but Me neither. (laughs) I won't be eight inches behind that crease. But the the problem is, is 
Plan we B. all know yeah. that Plan B. no matter what, crap happens. And so yeah. that animal yeah. can turn. They Ooh. can already be moving when you let go. It depends That's your broadhead sharpener right there? Yeah. yeah. You just put a little Ooh, gun man. on it. Even water works. You can mm-hmm. like new. Yeah, $35. So basically uh, a three-pack of your broadheads is a- about – 45 or 50 bucks depending on the size yeah. for three yeah. and and that's that is a solid milled broadhead for that price so uh, for instance this this uh fixed broadhead for the uh one inch uh solid serious serious is you know if if you got it's uh 45 dollars for 100 grains and um, Forty-five dollars for one hundred and fifty. That's for the four blade. Yeah, when you go up to the bigger diameter, that it's a little more pricey. But it's yeah, like it. makes sense. Yeah. So I when we go here, this but, is the one three sixteen. I'm right? gonna I'm gonna throw out the point that that I always get thrown at me from Luis is that uh, this broadhead being a single solid broadhead mill <laughs> with a sharpener. You know, whereas if I shoot some broadheads and, and I hit something with it or I hit an animal, a lot of times that, that booger might be shot. So, I mean, it's, I got to go to a different one. I got to go to another replaceable. I got durability. So really you're looking at a broadhead that you put, you sharpen, you're back in business, you're killing multiple animals with it out of carbon steel. Um, and so explain to everybody the benefit of that carbon steel versus what, I mean, in, th- in the things that you've seen with and the hardness on the hardness. Yes. I can't honestly speak a lot on in terms of the hardness or the type of steel. That's more of a, a Luke Allison engineering question. No, no. Okay. So what we're saying is this, Lee, when you shoot and you hit an animal in the bone, you know, <laughs> is that friggin' broadhead tweaking on you? No, it doesn't. And a large part of that is because the entire broadhead is made of steel. Whereas you look at a lot of other broadheads with even fixed blade broadheads with big cutting diameters, their right. ferrules quite often are made out of aluminum, which is going to bend and it's light as well, which you don't want anything light in line with your arrow shaft. Yeah, what, you know, what broadhead do you shoot, Lee? He carries two. Yeah. I've, already, I've already got this. I've listened <laughs> to him already, man. <laughs> no, I carry, uh, I carry a few different heads. This year, I'm switching over to the all 175 grain solids just to play around with the new stuff. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I, in a perfect world, I would carry some of the vented and some of the solid heads because uh, they fly absolutely identically. Whereas if I'm in a, <clears throat> if I'm taking a long range shot and wind, which happens all the time up here in Alberta. Uh, then I want the vented head. It's going to do a little bit better in the wind. But if I'm but, but make uh, more noise, right? Make more noise, exactly. Whereas if you're tucked into the trees over a bear bait or <clears throat> in a deer White stand, mm-hmm. shoot that solid head. It's going to be silent and perhaps more prone to wind planing. But there's no wind when you're shooting at 20 yards in the tree. Right? Exactly. So I take Fair both. Enough. They fly the same. Yeah. Lee, have you bent one yet? No, I broke one. I'm not going to lie to you about that. I've broken them. But you shoot, you know. Did you you break at the ferrule? I just had a blade break off once on uh, on one of the vented ones. I have not broken one of the solid ones yet. Um, and that could be because the vented actually has weak points at connection, right? So. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you look at them, 
it's hard to see. In, in the, um, go ahead and take this. Yeah, let me break, stop sharing. We break all blades all the time. We break blades all the time when we're. You know, yeah, hold hold that up. I'm going to pin them for a second so that we can make sure we see it. Okay, so these are. And what weight are these? These are both 100 grain. Uh, one 100 grain, right? Cut. Yeah, I mean, there's there's no doubt on any vented broadhead you can break them, and to oh, say man. that someone's Especially made the broadhead that you can't right. break is garbage. They, yeah. They will break. I mean, you're shooting, you're shooting a four to six hundred grain projectile at 280 feet per second. Things can break. You know? Yeah. So, so have you bent them so you can't use them again? No, I've never bent one. I've had Mark, one. I, I never bent, but broke a blade. Okay. And that was it. But so that's. You hit bone when you did it, or or do you think you hit a rock when it came out? Rock. Yeah. Yeah, and I think mine was definitely big stump. Big stone. <laughs> yeah, and look, you know, there is there is no immortal broadhead out on the no. market, right? No. I mean, so no, I mean, is that what you guys are talking about? Is absolutely like you know, it's great. I will tell and you, I, I love. Go ahead, yeah. And and the the Rockwell harness is between forty and forty five. Just pretty good. decent. So I just I just found it on y'all's website, and uh, you know, it's heat. Uh, every broadhead is heat treated as well. So. Pretty cool guys. I mean, I, I, I really like your transparency and honesty and straightforwardness towards the broadheads and every Absolutely. trial and everything you guys have done. That's, that's pretty cool. You know, what's your warranty no, no look BS like? in here and that's yeah. awesome. That's what's their warranty amazing. look like on a bent barrel? Oh man, they're, they're talking about like the, their warranty here. They can, you can just put in a claim and get a hundred percent refund guarantee, right? Yeah. You, you have any problem. Luke Allison will take care of you. Gotcha. Yeah. He's a good and, and there's and where are they out of here in the US? Where's that that shop? So Luke lives in Florida, but he's from Minnesota. All the factory and all the broadheads are manufactured in Minnesota from steel sourced out of Chicago. So everything is 100% American right down to the uh, plastic and the packaging. So that's that's American carbon steel, not Chinese carbon steel. Correct? There you go. Oh, I like that, boys. <laughs> so I I think that, uh where can people go is it toothofthearrow.com toothofthearrowbroadheads.com okay yeah, cool. long name but check us out there we're in a lot of shops uh we're in shit probably probably 250 shops in the states at this point um if not more um and if we're not in your shop tell them you want us and we'll we'll get in there yeah Sounds hey man yeah Real quick geek facts here for me. How heavy is your arrow? My arrow <laughs> is almost exactly 600 grains. It's 597. And my, nice. um, four, I just weighed it right now, 487.3. All right. <laughs> yeah. So, so Luis, Luis loves Lee and he's like, Mark, we can work with you. That's what he <laughs> like, I, I can see it spinning in light. his head. He's a little light. It yeah. depends. He's it depends. I mean, you know, Mark, how much are you drawing? 60. Yeah. So, I mean, th- there you go. That's, that makes sense. But every day I'd like to go 70, but I had the same thing. I had shoulder surgery. And I had a full bicep tear and a, and a full. You know, man, one hundred percent. I'm gonna tell you right now, man. My son shoots fifty five pounds and absolutely annihilates animals at fifty five pounds. Mm-hmm. I man, mean, this absolutely muscle, kills the heck out. Pounds. Do what? This muskox right here, I killed at forty nine pounds when I was 
I think Logan killed 15 whitetails before he ever crossed the threshold of 50 pounds. Yep. Yep. I mean, he Uh shot a little mission, um, mission menace bow that I think his first whitetail was at like 41, 42 pounds, blew through him like it wasn't even there, you know. Um, elk, elk are totally different than whitetails or smaller game, but you, y'all's whitetails up there are like shooting a baby elephant. I mean, <laughs> freaking rock stars. And, and I want everybody to know too that, uh, well, Mark, how many elk have you taken? I would say eight, I believe. In, in the last how many years? In 13. That's ah, awesome. Not bad, man. That's really good. really good. And I, and I don't know if everybody knows, but, but Lee, you're working on the slam, aren't you? Yeah, I'm shooting for it. Super slam, North American. Yeah. Awesome. So, how many animals have you taken? I have, I have nine species with a bow out of twenty nine. I've had a, I should have more, but things don't go right. Ah, that's that's, that's bow. You know, I got a third of a super slam so far, so I'm, I'm working on it. That's that's awesome, man. Congrats, man. That's pretty impressive, dude. You've yeah, got a coos deer already, don't you? Yeah, that's my key. That's a huge, that's a huge deal on the, that's probably the hardest one. Yeah, those are, those are crazy animals, especially to sit over water. Like you, I took my shirt right off and and my pants right off because it doesn't matter what you're wearing. Okay, all right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you, you you and Luis have similar qualities. We're just going to leave it at that, man. So you got to let me finish so this doesn't sound weird. Um, (laughs) point being, it'll allow you to retort. They're so skittish, <laughs> they'll hear any fabric rubbing. Like, it's yeah. just unbelievable. Yeah. That's unbelievable. So, Congrats. That, that's awesome, man. That's uh, I'm anxious to talk with you guys and get into our elk portion of this, the broadheads. Um, And I'll tell you guys, just talk to your, to your guy there. I'd really like to see our arrow guru do some tests on your broadhead and and uh, and see what we have out of that. And well, I already got them coming, so I've already <laughs> ordered me a set of them, baby. So oh, got some big hogs here to test them on. Yeah, yeah we look, I don't know if you guys have ever environment. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if you guys have ever hunted wild pigs, but uh, they probably is as hardy of an animal that you could ever shoot with a bow and arrow. They've got a big like shield, a plate on their shoulders that are, I mean, almost impenetrable to a lot of uh subpar products. I can tell you that you shoot a mechanical at one, you won't even get through the plate, you know? Um, I'm and I don't care if you're shooting 70, 80, 90 pounds, man, you've got to hit them in the right spot. And they're kind of the litmus test for us to look at, you know, Luis and I've been, and I'm telling you guys, I've been a staunch supporter of what I've shot for many years. But I, I went over to my brother's house right over there, uh, to, to Luis's house and he put me through the whole ringer of diving in to setting up the very tuned arrow to my bow, much like you do, you dial in a hand load for a rifle, you know, and from the knock tuning all the way into the arrow tuning and then finding a broadhead that we wanted to try out. And look, I'm, I'm not settled on the broadhead yet. So the arrow part of it, you know, it's a lock. Right. For whitetails, probably not a real bad thing. Uh, and for, and for pigs either. I've been shooting a wasp traditional. Mm, I'm just, mm, okay with the, with the blood trail, but not really. Um, I, I've shot, you know, the muzzy trocar, which has acted the best out of it. Uh, and I, it's a crossbow type broadhead. You have to get it to be able to shoot 150 grains, 
But we've both been looking. Luis probably got how many different broadheads you got in your case right now? Oh my God. No, I don't yeah. know. Seven, so eight. I, I probably <laughs> got seven, eight different kinds that, I mean, we're going to be throwing down the rest of this summer and, uh, then we'll lock, lock on one. Um, and well, look, I, and I'd, I'd I like, like you, what guys, you guys when you got do going that. On. When you do that, Gil, I'd like for you guys to really kind of maybe even do a little recordings of that so that we can give that to our, our viewers and listeners and sure. let them yeah. see what's going on as well. Right? Well, Luis, Luis had an unbelievable weekend. Okay. I mean, dude shows up and like the hogs are all, all read the script, man. I don't know what he killed 25 <laughs> or 30. I mean, the first morning, the I first shot six evening, in he kills two like days. four. He kills like four in the first 24 hours, you know, yeah. and we're not talking about no little bitty Pasquale pigs, man. We're talking about 150 <laughs> to 185 pound behemoths, you know, and, uh, yeah. again, flat put the bacon on the table. So. <laughs> And I don't mean to put you on the spot, boys, but it, for our listeners here, do you guys have any kind of promo codes that you use that for discounts or anything like that? There's always codes coming out. Uh, subscribe to the newsletter. Luke's always sending them out. That's not my side of the business, but there's always free. Well, it is ours, and we'd like to get with Luke and talk with him. Yeah, sure. so if if you guys can talk and find out if there is one, I'd like to put it in the show notes. So yeah. everybody that's listening, make sure you check our show notes. Uh, that way you can possibly try out. Check these. this out. They got something cool going on. When you log in for uh, on, on their webpage for the first time, it's got a deal where you can, you know, put your email address, and then you can spin the wheel, and the wheel will give you either a discount or free shipping, or you can even oh. win a, a free three-pack. So wow. you can do that, and then if you do it again, because I always like to test all these algorithms, then you can put in your phone number and do the same thing, and they get another spin at it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, awesome, man. All right, Gilbert. See why we got him, why we keep him around, boys. I mean, this cat is on it like a rat on a daggum Cheeto. You know? <laughs> yes, he is. He's the <laughs> Always. man. Yeah, I, you know, fellas, we're excited about looking at the broadhead. It looks fantastic. I promise you this, you know, when we get them in our hands down here, we're going to put them, put them to, to use. Joe, you know, before we move on, I know you've got some questions from our Elk Bros mailbox, but before we dive in, how about an update on the Elk Bros Adventure Hunt, guys, and to hunt with the Elk Bros giveaway? Yeah. So, man, this is it, – it's so cool. We are having our Hunt with the Elk Bros giveaway. Um, I am blown away by already how many entries and stuff that are coming in on that. This is probably one of the best – draw odds that you're going to get to hunt New Mexico. Absolutely. And it's, it's not just a hunt. And that's one thing I want people to understand that this hunt giveaway isn't something where you're winning a hunt, you're getting a tag and you're going out there and, and you're just out there hunting. That's not what this is. This is with our crew. I mean, our entire crew, Gilbert, RC, the mafia, Chab, myself, and whoever that winner is, the only thing that they have to do is They've got to bring their sleeping gear. They got to bring their regular gear. They got to bring, um, they've got to pay for their, their, their licenses for that. Um, but we've got the food. They got to get here. But at, during this hunt, they are going to be having hunt experiences with all the bros hunting with us. You're going to be coached the whole time. And prior to the hunt, our success team will be coaching them 
prior to the hunt as well. So that means that they will, just like I, we, I did with the guys from Hunt Wars, it's almost the exact same thing where we contact them. Each one of us, Lisa's going to contact them on their setup. Chav's going to contact them on, uh, on Training. their fitness and preparation. Gilbert's going to contact them on failure points to avoid. I'm going to be contacting them on their calling and their setup. So they're going to, and they're going to be getting lists coming at them, um, that are our elk bros, uh, recommended lists for different things on what to bring on different types of foods on, on different, uh, sleeping gear. So you're going to be set up and hit camp man running from the beginning and it's it's just really exciting and to enter this to enter this you can go read our official rules for all of our entry on that and you can find that on our website now you can get to it by going to elkbros.com slash hunt just h-u-n-t or you can go to elkbrosadventures.com and you will come in and learn something about our whole process. But this particular hunt to enter, you, all you have to do to get an entry, you get one entry for signing up for a subscription for a year to our uh, Elk Bros Base Camp Online Elk Hunting course. And that gets the ball rolling right there. That is so much. That's 40 years of information in that that's going to prepare them, man. And then the other way you can enter, you get an entry for every time you buy a gift card for somebody else to get the academy. And the goal of that is we want to spread the knowledge. We want it to get out there. We want to look, we talk all the time about our community and about our role as hunters. And one of our huge goals is to create not only successful, but ethical, responsible uh, hunters out there that understand the etiquette and that understand how to be respectful of that animal and other people in the woods and to take care and be the most effective elk hunter that they can. So in doing that, this whole thing just makes for a better program, better environment for all of us out in the woods. So that's our giveaway. But we also have our Elk Bros Adventure Hunt that we are going to have a maximum of four positions, four openings in which you can purchase that hunt to be coached by Elk Bros coaches. And some of our group, I'll be there, RC will be there, Gilbert will be there, Chav will be there, and we'll have a couple of our new Elk Bros coaches in camp as well. And at the time that's going on, shoot, Eric, uh, you guys are over at Hunt Wars coaching those guys. So we have Ooh. Elk Bros coaches in different parts of the state working with hunters to help them be successful, not to call animals in for them, not to do the work for them. We are not enabling. We are empowering. So our goal as coaches is to be that on-the-shoulder coach, coaching them through their calling. Now, can we do a team-type calling thing? Heck yeah. And that actually helps them learn what to do with somebody else. But we are not on that front line, you know, setting up and just saying, here's what you're going to do. We are teaching them to make their own decisions, to be self-sufficient, so that, shoot, after we're done, and this is, is what's so cool about our hunt, the ones that are coming to the Elk Bros giveaway hunt, they're going to be with us from September 1st to September 10th. and uh, 
actually it's the fourth to the fourth. tenth. Sorry. Yeah. And but that hunt goes all the way through the fourteenth. If they want to continue hunting, knock your lights out. Get after it, man. They've got the skill set. So rock and roll. So we want to develop confident, self confident elk hunters out there, man. And that's what's so different about what we do is we are not guides. We are mentors. We are coaches. We are teachers. We are empowering you, not enabling you. Yeah. So kind of, kind of on a side note, uh, I guided a guy on a rifle hunt this year from New Mexico and, uh, and he approached me later on and said, Hey, would you mentor me? And, uh, I want to learn how to bow hunt. So, uh, I've got a guy here in New Mexico, David Glass, and, uh, and I committed to him for, you know, the first 10 days of September. Uh, we're either going to be hunting in New Mexico, we applied, or we're going to Colorado. But my job is to do exactly that. I'm going to be coaching him, taking him through the course. We shot today. We've been working out, just getting ready, but I'm kind of doing it on my own, but it's my way of giving back because I totally believe in the course. And, uh, and I just, you know, I want to be an ambassador for hunting and, and getting people, you know, getting that learning skill, even though I can't do it with you guys, but we're, you know, we're, that's, that's what we love to do. We want to coach guys and, and, and well, and that's been Joe's vision the whole time, man. You know, yeah. when we started Elk Bros the long days back, he was like, man, I just, you know, Joe's a coach through and through. And uh, I would say myself as well. We're coaches, man. Oh, yeah. That's what we really love to do. A coach baseball and softball for over 30 years you know um i've been coached by some of the best coaches in the country um my elk hunting mentors you're looking at them i mean <laughs> these guys these guys are the best of the best you know I, and what's really cool is i believe this you know if you give a man a fish you'll feed him for a day but if you teach a man a fish absolutely you'll feed him for his lifetime absolutely. you know so that's that's kind of where our passion is this has never been done fellas we're reaching out there trying something brand spanking new our goal is to have elk hunting coaches in new mexico and then look out got mr guy duplanches up there in colorado <laughs> we we're looking to have a cell in Colorado. we're gonna have we're gonna be like you know the traveling wheelberries we're gonna have cells in every state you know uh we're gonna lay roots down in new mexico because that's where our heart's at but man i mean if guys want to elk hunt in montana idaho wherever it may be we're gonna have coaches ready willing and able alberta canada whatever it's got to be we're gonna have guys ready to handle it you know so that's our passion fellas yeah and and you know where it comes from too is and I, I was just talking to a buddy of mine that's going to do some insights additions with me, uh, Clint Whiting from up in Colorado. And when you have a coaching mentality, you attract a lot of people that are like, will you come and hunt with me? You know, and yeah. <laughs> there, there's, there's just not enough days in September for all the people that like that. But if I can reproduce myself. Yeah. And that philosophy and that knowledge and put that out there so that we can spread those cells, then we can meet a need that's out there for these people that really want to learn it the right way. So um, that's the goal. It's revolutionary. Um, we are licensed as outfitters, but we are not outfitting in, in yeah. that sense. We are coaching. So it's, it's a, it's a totally different model that uh, has never been done. We're very excited about it and to see where this goes. This, um, giveaway runs until April, let's see, May, May 10th. May. 
Yeah, it goes to May 10th. And uh, so you, if you want to be a part of this, go check out our site, you know, get you a subscription, give somebody a gift card. If you want to get more than one entry into it, then, man, you better start helping somebody else learn by sending them some gift cards. So Yeah, uh, and they can do it at elkbros.com slash hunt. Yep. Or at elkbrosadventures.com, guys. Absolutely, man. They can go there. So let's rock to our mailbox, man. Sounds good. Chab, you're up, brother. Yeah, but Chab's not here. We lost him. Oh, so, man, he bail out. Well, what's happening is is we've got snow, snow. going on here and our <laughs> connection. And I know people have heard it earlier. There's a little bit of technical wobble here and there, but gotcha. um, it's because of what's happening here weather-wise. Oh, I hate so, to lose the ninja. Yeah. So, Gil, why don't you go ahead and take that, bro? This this next question here is from Heath Gibson from Maypearl, Texas. Man, that's been a long time since I've seen a Maypearl, Texas uh, post here. It says, we hunted in Colorado last season just a week later from when you guys did. We found lots of vocal elk. Wow. And just <laughs> very call shy. Uh, my question is, how was the calling early? <laughs> and what was your technique? Yeah. Whew, that's pretty simple there, Joe. Uh-huh. I'm going to let you hit it. <laughs> well, you know, it it just kind of depended, man. Um, it, there wasn't a whole lot of talking, but there were times when we had, you know, we had some elk going off. Uh, man, I the day before the season opened, I called in a bull that just started screaming and ran in on me like, you know, he was on a rope, and that was the wrong day. I didn't want that happening. That's the one um, I ended up killing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Luis thinks that's the one he ended up killing. And then I ended up killing one Luis called. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's crazy, man. Cause we looked at the horns and we looked at the animal and yeah. it, it, it yeah. is the exact bull you called yeah. in, Joe. Yeah. yeah. Luis's horns. Well, he was running around, go kill me, kill me, you know, so. <laughs> that's Look, what, you know what? I, I don't discriminate. He, I'm going to tell you right now, when we got there, there were certain sections of of where we were at where early in the morning and late in the evening bulls would fire up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But man, once the pressure got on them, they really got quiet. quiet. I mean, Chab even had them coming in on water sources. And normally when they get out of a water source, they go on a bugle or something like that. But they were very silent, like not even really heard talking or anything when they came in there. So, so our, te- our technique is the same technique we always call it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, they're still, the, the fact rolling. that they don't answer doesn't mean they won't come in. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, my bull, my bull made one sound that I killed. My, my bull made one sound. We were a quarter mile below where we killed him. You know, he came walking in after 30, 40 minutes of us putting on this big scenario and here he came the whole time, but he didn't say a word, fellas, on his march in. And, and I know he thought there was a herd of elk up there. And that's actually one of the the reasons that we really like early season, y'all, is that there are a lot of hunters that give up in the woods. They just start moving too fast, and they'll just get through an area. And and I put this on one of our uh, posts one time, is you think about this, is that a lot of hunters are moving and looking for that one bull that wants to play. They're sounding off, sounding off, sounding out, looking for that one bull that wants to play. So think about this, man. When you go through an area, let's say there's 20 bulls in there, and you're looking for that one bull that wants to play. That means that if one of 20 bulls is what you're looking for, you're looking for 5% 
of the bulls that are in that area. And if it's one out of 10 that you're looking for, then there's 10%. But if 95% of the hunters are hunting that way, and they do, if 95% of the hunters are out there looking for 5% of the bulls, man, think about that. That means 95% of the hunters are out there hunting for that one bull. And that leaves, that leaves 90% of the elk, of the rest of the elk for the, uh, the rest of us, man. Yeah. So one of our favorite things to do, and, and I'm going to ask our, our, and we're going to get into that even more here in a little bit, but you know, one of our favorite things to do is to move through and sound like a small group of cows, a cow with a calf, or because we're doing mews, because we're doing herd talk, or we can even sound like it could even be three bulls that are mewing when they're going through. So here's the thing that is going to bring elk to you, either their herd mentality or their desire to breed, right? So when I'm moving through and I'm sounding like cows, man, I just hit both of these, right? Yep. So, but we move very slow and, and Luis and Manano were really good at moving through while they were doing the cow talk and then just stopping every now and then and listening. And if you're moving slow and you're stopping and listening, you're giving those elk that have targeted you and are moving in from the sides or for the front, wherever you're giving them a chance to catch up and you give yourself a chance to hear them coming in because they're noisy critters, man. So we kill a lot of elk that never make a noise. Or they might give a little mew out there, you know. And, and you got to understand, this guy, he don't go fast anyway. So it's really to my <laughs> advantage because the where, where we were hunting was like that anyhow. So it wasn't going fast, right? I'm got four wheel drive. That's all I got, and that's all you're ever going to get. And when I get somewhere, I'm gonna have to take a rest because it, it was all I had to get up there, you know. So, but is it four wheel high or low? It's four wheel low, bro. Oh, four wheel low. Oh, okay. so, like, like I said, it took RC, myself, and Brendan. And look, it, you know, I'm kind of the anchor. But it took us. And, and at one time, I mean, Brendan did have a broke foot. At one time, Brendan looked at me and goes, why, bro? Why are we going in this environment? I mean, it was horrible to get up there. It was brutal, you know, but I'm like, there's elk up there, man. Them, them, them Mexicans found them elk up there. We got to go, you know. <laughs> I said, uh, they found them elk up there. feet. And, and listen, dude, you know, I'm the same way with bass fishing. You know, Joe's really broke this down for me. We're a whole lot easier because I'm a fishing guy. I come from a real big fishing background. But for me, you didn't have to tell me where fish were. If you were catching them over there, I guarantee you, I'm going to go in there and catch them, right? I mean, that's that's how my mentality is. And my uncle taught me long ago, you never leave fish to find fish. And, and those guys were moving in different areas and going and finding elk. And I'm like, Fellas, y'all done found elk. I'm going in there. It might take me all day. I might have to eat me a, a big sandwich and not come out of there, but I'm going in there. And I'm telling you, the first time I walk in there, we slow played that whole deal several times. And with raking and rutting scenarios and that bull come in there, man, thought he was fixing to find a rut fest going on. But had we have kept rolling and yeah. been like He's very impatient, we'd have never right. saw him, you know, yep. never yep. saw him. So and I know, was. That's our technique. That's our technique. That's our technique. 
Yeah, and I was tempted to bring our boys in up there, but I'm going to save it because we'll get into our topic too soon on there because there's a lot of stuff that I want to discuss about what it was like for them up in Canada that matches up with what our topic is. So, Luis, take our second question there. Yeah, Justin Skelton from Garden City, Kansas. And he says, in episode 97, you guys discussed layering systems from a question in the mailbox. I was curious on how you guys feel about short-sleeved shirts, face mask, face paint, and gloves. We put all sorts of time, money, and effort into blending in, uh, but how much coverage does a guy actually need? So it's really about how well you use your cover, too. Right. Um, if you're out in the middle of the wide open, I mean, there's a whole lot of different things that you probably want to do. We don't hunt elk like that. So, I mean, we hunt elk in the, in the thickest parts that we can find. And wind I, in I, your I'm face you and guys, sun in the back. Yeah. Wind in our face, sun in our back. I wear a face mask, uh, a gator, a neck gator where I can pull it up. Uh, and I don't wear gloves. I absolutely abhor them. Can't, can't wear them. Can't bow hunt with them. Uh, I got to be able to feel everything from my release to, to my bow hand. And I've never had a animal alert on my hand or anything like that. And, uh, I, and Joe will tell you, I'm probably the best at, at layering there is because I got one layer and one little outer layer and the rest of the time I'm burning up. So it don't matter how cold it is. And uh, Liam, Mark, how do you guys feel about the whole camouflage thing? Uh, it's, it's, it's tough. Alberta's very, uh, how would you say it, Mark? We have a lot of different environments here. We have environments where you're hunting. I'm here in New Mexico, bro. Yeah. Right. And parts where you, you could be 10 yards from them and you can hardly see them. Uh, my experience with them is that when they see you, they're going to see you if you have camo or not. Um, and it comes down to environment factors. Uh, I don't know. What would you say, Mark? Yeah, I, I'm, I think I'm running the same kind of thing. I got a face mask. I do my due diligence. I don't wear gloves. Um, but when you're making calls, they know you're there. Yeah, uh, exactly. If, if you're, if you're in an orange, if you're in black, if you're in a camel pattern, yeah, like I, I, I get it. Like there's some camel patterns that really blend in, but like if, if you're positioned properly, either behind some nice shrubs, a tree, and you're, you're not downwind of them. You're, they know you're there. They're looking for you. So it's, it's really it's the a, movement. Movement. Yeah. Yeah. Movement. yeah. It's very movement and wind. Yeah. Like the camel, I, I, I get it. It, it. It's good. I wear it too. So I'm not saying don't wear it. I'm saying I don't, I don't think it's a massive factor that we, we all play like the paint that I, I don't wear paint on my face. I, I don't, I can't stand yeah, it. So, and, uh, yeah, I'll put it on. Nana wears lipstick. Lipstick, yeah. <laughs> and cologne. And cologne and a shower curtain. It still yeah. kills elk. Yeah, he does. It's crazy, yeah. man. So, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not for it. I, I've shot many animals in plaid and, yeah. uh, and yeah. red plaid, so it's not. Yeah. You guys well, you wear know, fleece? Y'all wear a lot of fleece? I wear a lot of fleece, man. I, I love fleece, especially <laughs> bear hunting. I love yeah. fleece. Um, one thing I like to remind people of sometimes though is, you know, you look at your, your Sitka and Kuyu and you got to remember that those companies, unbelievable camo, yeah. uh, they're sheep hunting companies at the end of the day. And, you know, Mark and I, we've done a lot of sheep and goat hunting as well. And that camo really shines in that environment. But when you come to things like hunting elk and whitetail, that's not what that camo was designed for. 
it, ha- it has great utility there, but uh, it's just something to keep in mind. You know, some of, one of the best elk killers I know, uh, I've never seen him in the bush without a cigarette in his mouth. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. So it's there's something to that, you know? Yeah. Look, so that's a good uncle. wind checker right there. Yeah, my yeah. uncle killed <laughs> thousand whitetails and smoked yeah. every day. You know, I with the whole camo thing with me, I think shadows and not being in the sun is is I don't care what you're wearing is 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 critical. Once you start shining, can I tell you what? You get you get your face lit up and an elk comes around, man. You, they're gonna it's gonna shine and they're gonna bust you. They just don't like it, you know, and if you're an object out there in, in the sunlight and you're, and you have any kind of movement, they're going to catch it because it looks like it's, you know, that you're not there. I am a big camel proponent. Um, I, I actually, I think some of the best camo is some of the 3D leafy type camo that actually breaks you up even better. A lot of people don't wear that um, because they have a hard time going in restaurants and Walmart and all that wearing it, I guess. <laughs> ghillie you know? suit. Yeah, yeah we well, have a ghillie suit on or anything. But actually, that's some of the, the best stuff. I, I never get behind stuff. I'm always in front of it, so it breaks me up. When I'm there, I don't now a little foreground cover down there. I don't mind, but I never get behind anything that is going to limit my shooting lane. I, that that's number one for me. I, I want to be broke up from behind. And like I said, shadows are critical. And I think what happens with camo is that if you feel like a lot of times, like they can't see you, like it, I don't know if it just gives off this aura or how you feel or how you're moving, but I, I just feel like, you know, you play like you, like you feel sometimes. Sure. And, uh, and if you feel stealthy, you can become stealthy. And, and I, I really, and I don't like camo, the same pants with the same top. And I like to have different patterns on in different parts of my body so I break up better because nothing in the environment is all one type of pattern. You know, the ground is different from what's happening in the trees to what's happening above in the sky. So break yourself up with that. You know, I, I wear, one of the I things I, I think, uh, I think to your point, you know, it's it's the same thing with smell, mm-hmm. right? Like, so yeah, if you can you, gain you, me some yards, right? Yeah, you you want to you want to gain a little bit of an edge, right? I mean, right. yeah, camel is definitely helpful, but it's not the not everything. Not everything. The same when you know when you when you if you don't shower for a whole week and you you know stink like a skunk, you know. Yeah, you got to play. You got to play the wind regardless. But yep. I mean, you're not helping yourself, right? <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I, I wear I wear two different types of camo on a hunt. In the morning times, I wear a real tree max four type camo where it's more of that uh western edge look. Um it's uh, got a lot of that spruce pine and elder look in it, uh some quaky stuff too and it's lighter. So as as we're getting lighter in the morning, it blends in. And then I wear a mossy oak breakup type camo for the afternoon or the evening when you're in the shadows a lot more. And uh I, I for me blending in. And then look, our base layer that I wear, I wear my own camo, Vacru camo as a base layer. And there's a lot of times where I gotta pull down to that and just be in my vest and my Vacru long sleeve camo. And if you guys have never seen that Vacru camo, it is awesome. It blends in like you wouldn't believe. And it's it's a it's a heat gear type uh you know base layer that actually wicks moisture away from you. It's called bird's eye material. Uh, my girls wear it when they play softball and down here it's 135 degrees in the shade. So, and they wear black in, in it. They love it, right? Because it's really good material and it breathes. So, um, that's the, yep, that's the Vacru camo. It's a real cool looking, uh, generic pattern that Joe and, uh, has came up with. Generic. Generic. We absolutely, we absolutely love it. <laughs> original. I mean, we, he meant original. original. Oh, okay. He meant original, original. not generic. <laughs> See, so, I like that though, cause it's not real dark. I find with some of the, the classic mossy oak real tree patterns you get, you. Way too dark. You find, you're the glass in your buddy when he's finding his way to you 200 yards away. He looks like a black, black blob walking across. Yeah. Him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and look, I always, uh, contrast is better than pattern contrast man so you want something that is going to have the lights and the darks and and we use a, an artist squint test to check our contrast and what i mean like like that is if you just go ahead and get snake eyed like squint your eyes it'll darken what's in front of you and it'll really accentuate it'll make the darks darker so that you can see the difference between the lights and the darks and i'm gonna tell you, you right look, now in south texas bow hunting that stuff is unbelievable yeah. brother and if you I mean, squint you, your eyes and look at it man it that's that's the thing is you know if everything turns black that's not a pattern you want to be in because right. you're not going to break up out there. So, uh, I, I think contrast is the most important out there, uh, when you're doing that. And then having something that as it gets farther, it doesn't meld together in something black, yeah. right? And, and that's what I see with some. Yo, Eric. Yeah, I like all the points you guys are making. I, I'm a little different about, I, I really don't care a whole lot about my pattern. Uh, yeah, pattern. I mean, I think they all work, but I'm more interested in the gear that I buy is gear yeah. that's going to, number one, durable. it's going to dry fast. It's durable. And if it's going to keep me dry, I don't want to be wet. I don't want to wear cotton. I, sometimes I like cotton, honestly, if it's not going to rain in summer, right. it cools me off. But I like stuff that's pulling that moisture away from my body because then the cotton like will start to smell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think about it like, what's it going to do when I'm out there? If I'm on a 10 day hunt, is this, uh, yeah. is this pair of pants not going to wear out? But. Sure. Yeah, they're all good points. Everybody's got their piece, but I think the other thing too is you don't have to buy the most expensive stuff. No, absolutely. Mine well, doesn't cost that much. The, yeah, you, you can go to Walmart, you can go to different places and they got all these blends of things like that, but whatever it is, it is, it's your movement, it's the wind, it's staying in the shadows, it's using the cover behind you, it's, it's, it's a combination of things, but yeah, you, you can go nuts and just buy. And, and it's and quiet. Yeah, at quiet, it's, quiet. it's a big one. Absolutely. Huge. It has to be Good quiet. Good points, though. 
Yeah. I like a great question from Justin for sure. Very, yeah. very great question. All right, Gilbert. Guys, well, you know what time it is. Shout you know out. it's time shout for out. our Elk Bro shout outs. If you're new to our show, this is a shout out to a few cities with the most listeners popping our charts this week. Jay and we're going to give those shout outs to those people who are giving us incredible reviews on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Taylor Graham from Powell Butte, Oregon. He's gone through, get this, y'all. He's gone through all 156 <laughs> episodes since January. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he says he works in a shop alone. He must be making uh, a tooth of the arrow broadheads. <laughs> he works in the shop alone, man. So he has plenty of time to listen. I'm like, this dude's got to be like, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Awesome. It, that could be dangerous, man. It really yeah. could. So, and then Justin Gotham out of Malpin, Oregon. Justin um, loves the passion for the woods and hunting, he says. And then we got one. And, guys, I, I really wanted to make sure that this came out and people heard this because I don't know that people believe that, you know, if you send something in, we tell you to send in a review. Let us know if there's something that you don't like. And we got one from Troy H. Troy mm-hmm. gave us five stars, and he says he loves our elk content. But the dude keeps it real, and he says he skips the first 30 minutes of listening cities and such that he's not interested in hearing the stuff that we're getting ready to do right now. He says he continues to listen for the wealth of knowledge, but he'd like to see us get back to the old episodes where we get straight to the talking points. And I'm not sure which episodes he's talking about, dude. I wonder if he's went through all 156. Yeah. But no, first of all, Troy, thank you for the review. Um, Thank you for keeping it real. We love hearing that. Um, and we all, had those discussions internally. You yeah, know, it's it's, all it's, the it's super fair. And and the good thing is though there is the ability to skip forward to do all Absolutely. that what he's doing. Yeah. So no, I, yeah, we we appreciate that feedback for sure. Yeah, and and that's where I'm going to give it. You know, out there is that you know Gilbert always says it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. And Absolutely. you know, again, this is our elk camp. Um, we had a great time with the boys when they came on. We've burned a lot of time on this podcast already talking to them about what they do, but that, but y'all, that's content, man. Yeah. That is valuable, valuable content right there. And maybe you don't think the cities are, but let me tell you what, to these little towns, I'm from Cimarron, New Mexico, population 900 and something. And for somebody on a show to say, you know, thank you and salute to you. Would, would mean a ton to me. And, and it's, it's, it's nice to be appreciated. So that's why we do this. We're going to continue to appreciate them. But Troy, man, uh, thank you so much for, for your, your honesty. honesty. Yeah. 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 I, we love the honesty, man. So we're going to get started, man. We're going to get started with our, our shout out to the city. Chab's not here. So I'll take care of this. This week's top listening city is located in the San Fernando Valley and lies in the Vertigo Mountains. When I heard that Vertigo, man, I got dizzy as soon as I heard Verdugo. it. Verdugo. <laughs> right? That's Verdugo. Verdugo. Verdugo Mountain. There you go. We got there you go. Go with over Verdugo. six million. Get this with over six. I, Luis, tell me how much this is like in in <laughs> like in miles man square miles but Huge. six million square feet of office space it's home to walt disney and imagineering it uh such service titans as ihop applebee's and dreamworks studios which you guys are known for animation movies like shrek ants kung fu panda and if you're a parent you know exactly what those are <laughs> because you've had to watch them 
a million times already. And it was long inhabited by the Tonga people. It later came under control of a corporal from the Spanish army in 1798. And after being ceded to the United States in 1884, a group of residents named the city Glendale, California. Glendale. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, very much so. So this next city uh, is it's really interesting because it's called the Gateway to the Olympic Peninsula because of its proximity to the southern end of the of that peninsula and then the Olympic National Park. Uh, are you guys familiar with the Olympic National Park? In mm-hmm. what? There's a guy. Yeah, I'm not, man. Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a sec, but. Super cool place, and since the 1980s, it's been famous as the birthplace of grunge, right? So grunge, rock music, man, this is stuff that's banging out. Even I think more of 90s, honestly. Nirvana. And it's a hometown, yeah, hometown of Nirvana, and members of uh, Kurt Cobain and and Chris Noah Selleck. It was also named after a Scottish fishing port, so it's home to something really cool. But it's a uh, it's a ship, a tall ship called the Lady Washington, and, and it's a replica of the original. Uh, and that ship had, had sailed all around the world in the 1700s, and then it ended up, you know, wrecking and everything else. But they rebuilt that ship, and then it was featured in the smash hit films, which you guys are familiar with. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean and the Curse of the Black Pearl. So big shout out <laughs> to Aberdeen, Pearl. Washington. Aberdeen, and, Washington, uh, man. Yeah, so – you know, I was mentioning the Olympic National Park. Uh, there used to be a show that was coming out on National Geographic, and um, there was a guy that they used to call him the Barefoot Sensei. I don't know if you ever saw him, but uh, his name was Nick Dodge, and he oh, lived yeah. out there. He was barefoot, man. Yeah, Remember this yeah. guy? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So big old Nick Dodge. He lived in he lived in the park for a while. He kind of goes back and forth. Him and his wife have a. They live someplace else. They've got like a like a gym, but it's all natural. Like you climb trees. It's pretty cool. Wow. And then um, they actually had a guy there back in the day. It was kind of a, a scary place because people would not, it was a deadly town to live in. There was a lot of murders back in the old days when they were um, doing a lot of uh, tree cutting, you know, it was big, that was a big industry. And then logging they kind of treated all out. Yeah. yeah. Logging. There you go. I can't remember the guy's name offhand, but uh, they had, thought he had killed about 140 people. He wow. worked in a bar and, and was preying on these migrants, but they ended up convicting him of two murders. And, uh, you know, he went to prison over, it. but yeah, it was kind of a scary place for people. You know, you'd show up there and you'd never come back. So but, uh, <laughs> that's, but, that's a bright spot, man. <laughs> yeah, No, no, but that, that's a long like time ago. Yeah. yeah Ab- Aberdeen's about 20,000 people today, but that's uh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Really beautiful place to go. So thanks and for being you- listeners. And when you talk about the birthplace of grunge, I think that's kind of where alternative was, was born, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, mm-hmm. that's Nirvana was kind of the king of that and they were yeah. based out of there, you know, so. Kurt, Kurt Cobain. Uh, yeah. Green yeah, Day. Kurt Nirvana. Cobain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Awesome, man. Um, our next top listening city is known as the Village in the Hills, established in 1786 by the Vermont legislature. It was named after a French cartographer, Jean Baptistery. Oh man. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I'm lost on this one. Jean Baptiste Bourgoignon de Anvil. <laughs> Bourguignon. Bourguignon. Yeah, dude, man. Um, a debtor's prison was located here in the late 18th century and late 19th century. And we're going to talk about that in a second. That's interesting. The town made national news in 2008 
get this, when a thief apologized for robbing a local store and left a roll of $1 bills to allow (laughs) the store to open the next morning. And this is in Danville, Vermont. Shout out to Danville, Vermont, man, all the way over there on the east. Um, Do you guys know what a cartographer, cartographer is? It makes maps. Yeah. yeah, it makes maps. Yeah. yeah, they make maps, man. So back in the day. And, you know, here's the cool thing, too, is they talk about debtor's prison. You guys ever hear of a debtor's prison? Oh, yeah. Back then, for sure. That's that's biblical. Yeah. Um. Actually, six states still have debtor prisons in the United States. What are they? Really? So debtor's prison is just that. People that are not able to pay their debts end up oh, going to jail to work to pay off their debts. And it's uh there's a lot of controversy with that as well that think. comes in there. But yeah. But uh yeah, they, they actually still exist, man, in six states. But that's what they were for. It was originally people that, you know, that owed would go to, you know, these debtor prisons in order to be able to pay off that debt. Wow. And that's what that was for. So got yeah. more time than money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of people I know. That's for sure. This next I'll top pay listener, you back, bro. I'm telling yeah. you, I'll pay you back. <laughs> this next top listener, City Joe, is a boater's playground with access to the intercoastal waterway. We call it the ICW here. Uh they also claim the largest public boat ramp in North Carolina from which to shove off. The claim inlets and ponds provide ample opportunity for fishing, canoeing, kayaking, and stand-up paddleboarding. The community is located onto the northeast side of the Marine Corps base, Camp Lejeune. The yeah, my town dad, my dad in, was my dad was stationed there, bro. Yeah. The town was largely populated with military personnel stationed at half a dozen nearby marine bases yep. in Hubert, North Carolina. Hubert, North Carolina. Yeah, Hubert. Yeah. Yeah, glad to have yeah. you, man. Yeah, Camp Lejeune, bud. That was uh that's where my dad uh I think I was actually born in one of those um half tin can barracks out there. <laughs> born in a Quonset hut. Huh? Yeah, Quonset hut. Yeah, I Quonset actually hut. actually was born in a Quonset hut, man. Uh, they've got that, photographs of that okay. explains we it. We don't want to see <laughs> <laughs> that explains it. That explains it. I, I don't know if you know how that all went about, but I, I imagine <laughs> they had married people there on base or something. Man. Did your dad did your dad work on base? Yeah. Or was he in the Marine Corps? Yes, he was in the Marine Corps. My dad was oh, a, sergeant, awesome. a, a sergeant in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You bet. Luis. All right. In 2009, the Georgia State Legislature declared the city as the vast capital of Georgia. The Flint River and Lake Seminole offer abundant fishing and water sports. Both waterways attract thousands of amateur and professional fishermen, and many of the top bass tournaments are held throughout the year. The town was named after the commander of the frigate Constitution, and and none other than Bainbridge, Georgia. Bainbridge, Georgia. Awesome. And you know Gilbert's had to have been on one of them lakes. Been on Lake Seminole a few times, yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Hey, guys. uh, Yeah, man, caught some good ones. 
Georgia, North Carolina, Vermont, Washington, all the way over on the other coast, Glendale, California. We covered both sides of the United States. Guys, y'all, thank you so much. You're the reason we're here right now. So let's get to the main content because I want to get these fellas talking there before they get drunk on us, man. You know, (laughs) too late. (laughs) Too late, huh? (laughs) So our main content is about elk hunting strategies and is the game the same? And, you know, we always talk about how you know, you've got, you've got elk in Arizona, you got elk in New Mexico. Now the rosies are a little bit different out there, but they also have, you know, they got elk up in Washington state in Oregon. They have some of those Rockies from Wyoming, you know, cause we had guys that came down and hunted hunt wars down here from like Wyoming and Idaho. And they found like, there was some things that were a little bit different for them. And so, but I truly believe, and this is my, my theory this is my statement, nothing behind it. I'm not an expert, but I think elk are pretty much elk. There might be a change in terrain um, that changes your hunting strategies and techniques because of the terrain that's there. But I think the general basic behaviors of elk are pretty much the same no matter where you go. And in order to have that discussion, we've got Mark, we've got Lee up there in Alberta, Canada, and we're going to... um we're going to hit that. So you guys up there, you talk about your terrain uh, and that you guys are hunting. And you said it was varied uh, up there, but let's hear about it again. Yeah. So if we're, we're going like where we are right now, central Alberta, um, we're hunting the foothills, they call it. Uh, so it's right before the Rocky Mountains. It's rolling hills, mm-hmm. grassy, um, timber mixed in. Um it, and, and that's the central. If you go down south, it's pretty much same, but it gets almost, there's almost part deserty too. Um, in the southern, you got getting cactus, you're getting, um, very much, uh, that deserty kind of feel. Um, but still rolling hills and mixed in with timber. Um, and then the northern part where Lee hunts, um, it's, it's full on thick timber. Yeah, like I, I, I would say, much to what you said, Joe, it's uh, an elk is an elk, but where the elk lives makes all the difference. And right. The difference between what Mark usually hunts, and I spend, you know, probably 10 days a year with Mark here in southern Alberta and the rest of my time up in northern Alberta hunting elk, it's a completely different game. Yeah, so it makes the a difference. Different, and and let's just, yeah, let's, let's make this clear. We're saying... There's a difference in the strategy, but not a difference in the behavior of the animal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'd say so. I mean, they, whether they're herding up in the bush or they're herding up in the middle of a hay field, they're doing it at the same time. Yeah. I I would agree with that. Yeah. 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 Do you guys prefer to hunt them in the, in the, Mm -hmm. in the thick forest or would you rather hunt them on the farmlands? With the bow. With the bow. With the bow. bow. With the bow, I'd probably, I don't know, maybe because I've done more of it, I'd probably take the bush. But my issue also has been I'll go out for a week of elk hunting, call in, you know, get four bulls within 30 yards in a week. But but you can't get a shot. Exactly. So, so I, I feel like, and, and I'm not, I'm not blasting you or anything, but I think a lot of that, a lot of time has to do with, with setup, right? And, you know, and the good part about it is you've had animals at 30 yards, but you have a good opportunity for that animal to be at 15 yards 
and, you know, come in and, and it's a done deal because it's close and personal like that. How many, what has been the distances that you killed your elk at, Lee? Uh, I've killed the closest elk I killed was 20 yards. Right. Mark's the guy who gets close. Mark so, yeah. almost touches him. Yeah. The, the closest I have was six yards. Mm-hmm. And, wow. And the farthest was about, um, I took a shot at 52. Um, right. I could have took a longer one, but that was the longest one I've ever shot was 52. Now, now was that in more open country or was that in thick? I do all mine predominantly Southern Alberta on private land and public land. And okay. I would say now. So it I was got, more farmland? Yeah. And I got a lot of access to, uh, some really nice private land west of Calgary toward the, the foothills and the Rockies, like the, right into the mountains almost. And it's, yeah, it's very much all the bottom layer is hay, farm, crop, and then you work up the hill and it's all timber. So let's talk about behaviors. Let's talk about behaviors. So. If you, you take a look at, let's say September 1 going all the way through to September 30, right? Let's mm-hmm. talk about what those animals, what are you hearing or what are they doing? What would you say is really their pre-rut stage? Cause I, I classify as this. There's kind of a pre-rut where they're kind of buddied up, right? They're, um, they're kind of, um, not feeling all that testosterone yet, but then there's a transition phase where now they're starting to kind of go and look for cows and maybe starting to make some sounds a little bit more. And then you have your rut. So you've got that early, you've got that transition. Then you have the rut where it's pretty much, you know, the animals are starting to bugle. So in that question, when those guys were earlier, they were talking about early when they were there. Right. So from September, what's it like for you guys from September, let's say first to like September 8th? Very quiet there. Uh, and like you were talking about earlier, I don't know how many times I have screwed myself big time by getting up and moving and not just being extremely patient. Um, and like, so what I'm talking about is that early season, you're, you're, you're communicating to them by either cow calling, mews, uh, um, calf calls, or a little bit of a, I'll throw in a, a, a bugle, but it's super, I make it super, like I'm trying to act like a little guy, um, yes. super, super small. And Not I'm, aggressive, really, yeah. just kind of, more, a more of a location, here I am, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and I'll do it in a sequence, and I'll, I'll spur, like go for like five minutes, and now I sit for 30 minutes, I'll sit. And don't move. And if, cause I, I don't know how many times I've got up and all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God. Staring at him, yeah. Right there. And now if I just would have sat my butt down and. No different than us. He's coming in. But there, I find that September 1st to 8th, it's like clockwork. They are extremely quiet. They come in silent. And, and if you do hear something, it's, it's, it's probably you scared them or they winded you. And you're hearing them bark or they're, they're like, Oh, there's something there. That's not normal. Um, and, and I'm, I'm talking, but other than that, they're coming in quiet. And, and the only time you're hearing them is either they're stepping on branches or right. hit something because there's three or four of them and they're, they're not always quiet. No. How does raking do for you during that stage? <laughs> I was just going to ask that. I, I don't do it. 
Really? Man, because, you need to put that in your, your but, quiver. Uh, but is he not, are you not doing it because of the terrain? Because you don't have any cover and they can pin you more or you yeah. just don't? Alberta. I don't, I don't think we, it's, it's, not, it's not, not a thing that people do up here, I no, think. No. See, for us, it is good. So do, do elk do it? Absolutely, they do it. Yeah. Yeah, you can hear them, you can hear them racking the trees for sure. Yeah. Exactly. You put that in your arsenal, brother, and bulls will turn uh, around and come. I, yeah, I want you to experiment with it some this year because yeah. we do really well with raking Early. much better than any kind of bugling or anything in that stage of it. So when are you guys basically starting to hear your animals starting to toot off a little bit, getting their voice? I mean, up in northern Alberta, I'm always up there. The season up there opens August 25th. And we're always here in bugles, but I mean, how many are other hunters for one? And, and two is we're never calling in anything. Big. What was the date that you said of that? August 25th is when it opened. On the 25th, yeah. Well, so what do you guys consider prime rut in Canada? Uh, I would say the 15th round, September 15th. Yeah, I'd say the same 15th to 21st kind of thing. Okay, same. cool. Yeah, that's fine. That's about Maybe the same a little thing. earlier than us, Joe, but. I, I would, much. you know, I would yeah, say, much. man, I, I think that, I think that seven days before and seven yeah. days after yeah. is rocking, man. Yeah. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the problem is you get the seven days after they've, they've cowed up mm-hmm. and, you know, Super they're starting hard. to, yeah, I think it's a little bit different there, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think that 15th to that, to that, you know, 24th, 22nd is, is pretty much rocking. And, uh, now have you ever seen up in your area, like where around the 28th, 29th, 1st through 3rd of September, you're getting an early rut possibly? Yeah. You know, and I find it in the the private ranches up here, Mm -hmm. not public land down South. They hurt up super quick. And, um, I would say if you're not on them in that first week, like you say, the first to the eighth or even the 10th, um, they're going to have close to a hundred already. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. They, and and the one, the one ranch I, I, I have private land on, it's there's three herds of about 200 each. Uh, so there's like 600 elk on this ranch. So are they hunting that ranch? Yeah, but it's, uh, what's super, your bull to cow ratio? Super exclusive. Bull to cow ratio? Yeah. yeah. On those, on those, uh, on those private ranches. 50? I don't know. It's not. 50 to 1? Yeah. 50 to 1. 50, cow, 50 cows to every one bull? 40 to yeah. 1 maybe? Yeah. Yeah. I find that up in northern Alberta, there's more bulls. Like it's, it's a better, closer ratio. Here, you're getting, like this year, um, I would say out of the 100, if I saw 100, there was two, two bulls that were even worth going after and then lots of spikers and non-legal bulls. And then the majority after that is all cows. What does y'all's legal bull have to look like? Three points or better. Three point on point. One side. Two points or three? Three. 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 Gotcha. And a point here is, uh, four inches, I believe. Gotcha. Double check that. But yeah. So let me, let me ask you this, Mark. Your favorite strategy for working an animal? Depends on the season. Uh, depends on where the, in the season is. Right. Mainly what my biggest strategy is, I will get my butt to the top as fast as I can in the dark and I sit up and I glass and I glass and I glass 
and I wait for them to, to catch them coming from a watering hole or going to a, a regular source that I've seen them, and then I make a play after that. But that's that's my biggest. And what about in country that you're not able to glass? Um, th- then what I'm going to do is I, 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 I'll locate. Um, so get to I, – I love getting high um, first because – yeah, now in the morning uh, or evening? Uh, uh, I morning. I, I want to try that when I when I retire. Yeah. <laughs> Getting high. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude, man! I, isn't that what maybe we're talking we about here? Scene, maybe we ought to have a scene in our in, next year uh, where Manano slapping oh, the coin, going. Crap! I'm sorry, I misunderstood. I thought that's what the we were crap out of you, about. dude. <laughs> what, what does y'all's elevation look like there, brother? Yeah. We're at right now, uh, Calgary's 3,500 feet above sea mm-hmm. level. Mm-hmm. And then where we're hunting, you're going up maybe another 1,500 feet. Oh, okay. So y'all 4,500 to 5,000. Yeah, 4,500 to 5,000 in that range okay. is probably okay. the biggest peaks through the foothills. Yeah. We're no. double Do that. Yeah. Do you we're hunt bedding that. areas? Sorry? Do you hunt the bedding areas like during the day? I do. Yeah, I, I'm not that that guy, but Lee yeah. is. Well, like like we say, the areas that Mark and I hunt are just so vastly different. In your, in yeah. Mark likes to go see the elk, and when I've hunted with Mark, that's absolutely the way to do it. Um, where I hunt up in northern Alberta, I'm not gonna see them unless you catch them in a field right before, uh, right before legal when they and see where they uh, jolt into the bush, right? Mm-hmm. So I I do like hunting the bedding areas because. I know that's where the elk are, but with what Mark's talking about, I agree. It's, it's tougher. Yeah. 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 Especially if you got eyes on them, you can pattern them and things like that. It's a little bit easier. Not, yeah. not saying it's easy, but it's nice to be able to see elk and you could parallel them and do different things. You sound like you've got a pretty good handle on how they're moving. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The, the private land. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead, fellas. No, I was just gonna say the private land we haven't pegged. We yeah. we know their patterns. We know where the water sources are. We know yeah. where the food is. Yeah. And nobody's gonna mess with them. They're not gonna mess with that pattern, right? Yeah. So that's that's so much different than the public, public. hunting because yeah. you know that's like we're very very aggressive on public land because of just some of the things that you're talking about. Is you know we get an animal if an animal does let us know where they're at, whether it's uh, a mew, whether it's a grunt, whether it's raking, whatever, if it's a, if we get a location bugle, you know, we're wanting to close on that animal really hard and fast on public land because, you know, like Lee had said earlier, there's always a chance that those other hunters are there and actually kind of intervene on what's happening with you. So we're, we're super aggressive as far as moving in and trying to get in that bubble or that red zone of that elk so that we can work it. And then we have to read it from there. Um, that's in that time of year when they are sounding off. So from that, and, and that's where I'm kind of, I want to kind of compare and see if there's any similarities or not. Like when we talk about our staging time, so from that first to the eighth, and then we've got where that transition, and it can happen from like the seventh to the tenth to the fifteenth is kind of a transition period for us where bulls are starting, especially the young bulls, man, they're grabbing some cows here and there, but those big guys are still kind of staying off to the side. Are you seeing that or anything different? 
Grinders tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Podcast. Our goal is to share our knowledge and help you flatten that learning curve so that you too can have some of the very same incredible experiences that have given all of us here at Elk Bros a lifetime of memories. If you like what you hear or see, you can get all of this information plus so much more from our Base Camp Elk Hunting Training Camp, the first in a series of online courses from our Blue Collar Elk Academy. Our Base Camp Training Camp allows me to use my coaching style and share almost 40 years of elk hunting experiences successfully hunting elk on public lands as well as over 20 years guiding hunters of all ages and experience levels. This course will be like nothing you have ever experienced in concept and structure using success-based coaching techniques that will elevate your confidence and skill sets. Our camp will prepare you specifically from that final moment most in your control, those final minutes or seconds the elk is in front of you, backwards through each step and level, allowing you to see visualize, understand, and relate every coaching point to what lies ahead, the next step, the next thought process, the next success. Because, y'all, you've already been there. You know what it looks like. By tapping my 30 years of teaching and coaching experience, our camps are developed considering multiple learning modes with text, visuals, audio, as well as video. And Base Camp will benefit those new to elk hunting all the way to the 10 to 15 year vet. So if you are looking for that one thing to help you fill that tag this year, invest in the most important piece of equipment there is, you and your elk hunting knowledge. You can find the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Academy and the Base Camp Training Camp at elkbros.com. That's E-L-K-B-R-O-S dot com. Keep dreaming of the screaming, believing in achieving, and most of all, Keep grinding. That's, that's pretty. That's pretty similar for sure. And I'm finding that they'll hold up as long as they can. We'll we'll get the smaller, younger bulls. Definitely spikers, hundred percent coming in all the yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, and they'll either one will come from one side and one will come from another side, and they'll flag you, like they'll flank you. I mean. Yeah. Uh, one spiker will come from here and a three point or a four point even will come from over here. And, uh, yeah, we're seeing the same thing and they're holding up. They're not, they're not coming in. Do you guys find it's easier to call bulls in the northern part or is it easier to call them on the, on the southern part on the private land? Uh, I don't know. My, my experience would be that it's probably easier to, to get a bull talking up in the northern part where there's a lot of cover and less cows. And less cows, but I mean, we've had them talking a lot both ways. It's depending on the time of year. Easier to get one talking to you when there's a ton of cover, but then your odds of killing one when it's within range are a lot slimmer too. Right. Trade off. Yeah. So, as far as your animals there, like in that more, do you experience more hangups in your open country, Mark, than you do up and up north up there? Yeah, they will. And if they have a, a section of trees, I've seen it, like they did it this year to us, they'll, they'll hang up in a, a cluster of timber and they'll just stay there. And then if you have too much of a gap between where I was set up and they were there, they yeah. won't cross. Yeah. And they'll yeah. they all there. Yeah. And, uh, and then you just gotta, you gotta change your tactic. Well, and, it's, it's the setup. You know, yeah. when we talk about so much 
we talk about setup. It's just you got to change your setup. You got to get past that barrier before you engage, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then things will work in your, in your, uh, in your fashion. I've seen this a thousand times, man, where the calling was great. Everything was good. Bulls cooperating. And, you know, instead of me being on one side of the cover, I was on the other side. Bull steps out in the open and he's got 75 yards across there. I'm on the other side. He, he's supposed to see elk, right? He ain't seeing elk. He's just hearing it. And they're smart, man. They are not absolute fools. They are herd animals. And when they don't see something and they felt a little pressure already, then they're like, huh, fool me once. I've been there. You know, shame on me. I'm out, you know. So for, for me, learn so much about, okay, well, if I think they're in that timber, I'm going to set up on the north side of that timber instead of on the south side so I don't have that obstruction to Heck deal yeah. with. Mm-hmm. And I, it happened to me this year and I knew it, you know, RC Knox and I had a bull talking to us. There were actually three bulls on the other side of this little knoll. And there was a little Tranos that ran through there, man. <laughs> that that Tranos was probably about 40 foot deep and about 60 foot up on the other side. And I knew, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, I needed to get to the other side of that. But the wind was so jinky that I felt like if I did, I'd probably blow them out of there in the, in the, in the process. But hindsight's 2020. If we'd have made it to the other side, we called those bulls all the way to the edge. They're standing there looking at us and RC's looking at me like, dude, you exactly pinned it and you called like what was going to happen. There's nothing we can do. They stood there, stood there, didn't see the, didn't see the party taking place and case Sarah, Sarah, they turned around, went the other direction. But, you know, I don't know whether they smelled us or what, but RC said they got disenchanted and, and moved. But if we would have went across and got to the top of that ridge, we'd killed a bull that, that, that was coming in to begin with. Right. Uh, so I feel you guys pain, but so much of our, our, I wouldn't say failure, but so much of our inopportune is because we don't set up right. You know, that's yeah, that's number one is is because people have to remember with elk, they're just like people, exactly like people seeing is believing Yeah, they are visual first. Yeah. And, you know, we always talk about elks, how in, incredible their smell is, their ability to smell. But that's actually third on their list, man. They they want to be visual. They're going to mm. go to the uh, auditory, and then they want to check it with their nose if they can, right? But mm-hmm. if they come out there, if they're in a gap of trees and you're sounding off on the other side because he's displaying and he's got cows, he's like, um, you know where I'm at. Let me see you, man. Mm. And, you know, when you see bulls yeah, out in the wide you. open fighting each other, yeah. it's because they've seen each other, man. They've yeah. displayed you know, and so that visual act of dominance of of t of you know mad dogging each other makes them come out in the wide open and just get after it because they see visually. So if you set up and you're sounding like an animal and there's a gap where they should see you and you're not there, it's it's a done deal, man. It it's not going to work out for you. That's why that thick country like Lee's talking about up there is so much. Yeah, you can have animals at 30, 40 yards and not get a shot. But I I would much rather have that encounter where I'm there at 30 and 40 and maybe work on, you know, if I can work on my setup there than be stuck someplace looking at animals 150, 80 yards, you know, away and have no opportunity to get in on them, you know, um, well, and, 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 you know, Joe, we've, I've had bulls as close as 12 feet 
man, I mean, 12 feet standing over me, looking at me and Chav, and I just keep making little bitty herd sounds or cow sounds with my bugle tube behind me, right? Settle them down. Cause they got all the wind, got them all jinky and, and look, I mean, they're standing on, across a barrier anyway. And at the end of the day, if you can make them feel comfortable, even when you're in that thick stuff, guys, even when you're in that thick stuff, you can make them feel comfortable. You can get away with a little bit of movement to get in there and make your shot. You know, a lot of movement and absolutely. a lot of noise because you can absolutely bugle yes. your way. You can absolutely bugle your way right to one of those bulls and he will stand there and watch you do look it. for you. Right. Yeah. He will stand there and watch you. He's going. Well, that don't look like an elk, but it dang sure looks like something moving and it's bugling. By the time that he figures it out, you can be a full draw and be in there in his kitchen in 25 yards and, and make it happen. You know, for us, we blow, you know, Joe and I blow up so many different opportunities because we're super aggressive in nature and getting in there. And, you know, I can't tell you, I mean, as many good encounters as we've had, we've blown up twice as many because we get in there and push the, push the envelope. But, that's how you become successful at elk hunting. You got to have those opportunities. You know, um, if you don't, you're only going to get one or two in a five or seven day hunt, man, you got to make good on it. So I'd rather have 10 or 12 opportunities, you know, blow five or six of them, have a couple of shots where, uh, where we can make it happen. What about, what about during your primer up, man, when they're cowed up, when you got those herd bulls that have got, and, and let me ask you, what size groups of herds are you finding with your bulls up there? Are you finding, like in Colorado, we experienced like a bull with one cow, three cows. Yeah. And yeah. I never, I don't think, you know, maybe five cows. And now where we hunt in New Mexico, we've got bulls with 50 cows, man, uh, in wow. some places. You know, uh, we've got multiple bulls with herds of, you know, you'll see three, four, or five bulls that will converge together and have about 300 head all together. So what are you guys seeing up there? So the the public land, that's about, I'm looking at about 50-ish. It, it, when okay. time, that's about, like, that's a big one. Uh, in the public, big, that's yeah. huge. Um, but you're, you're minimum 20 to 50 in the public. And like I said, on these private ranches, we're, we're talking 200. Yeah, two or even 300 yeah. I've seen. 200 yeah. cows with one bull? Yeah, but uh, like no, yeah. five maybe, max five. five. Bulls, but one bull that's clearly, that's clearly running the show. That's a lot, man. Yeah, and, and that has to do with their – do you guys feel like you have a solid age class or is there only a few mature, really big bulls with a lot of dinks? Yeah. Even even Alberta in general, and somebody's likely going to correct me on this, but there's not – a lot of massive 400 inch bulls here. Sure. You're not getting that. Um, so what would you, what would you say your class bull is there generally? Three, 330, 340 in your That's definitely. a good bull, man. Yeah. It's a giant, dude. Yeah. People don't understand, man. You know, Pippin Young's 260, 270, something like that. Yeah. I mean, in Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. Jimmy yeah. Christmas. Here, I mean, Definitely a half dozen 370 plus bulls killed in Alberta every year. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's a big province though, buddy. It's a big place. Big province, but the population of Alberta is probably what three, not even maybe three and a half million, maybe. Yeah. Gotcha. It's not that big. Right. How many, how many elk hunters you guys think? Yeah. Pressure. What's your, what's your hunting pressure like? Yeah. It's awful. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people. And especially with COVID lately. (laughs) <laughs> we feel your pain, brother. 
bombarded with people. So, yeah, the public lands suck for lately. Just yeah. and, and you're getting a lot of people just trampling everywhere. Yeah. What's the tag cost? In, you know, what's our tag cost? Oh, 26 bucks. For y'all? <laughs> wow. That's Say awesome. that again. Say that again. $26. $26. Canadian too. That's like, that's like 18 American, I think. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? What do they charge a foreigner? Oh, it'd be more. I'd have to look it up, but it's not even that bad. I think it's five. So, so that's for, that's for you guys from Canada. So let me ask you some questions for us, for us, uh, Americans that you don't want up there. (laughs) (laughs) What just now being able to go up there, Joe? Yeah, what's that? Just opened it up. What what does it? I mean, can can uh, people that are not Canadian hunt in uh, Canada without a guide? Yes, they can. There's a there's a caveat here. So in Alberta, you can only do two ways. You can either do one guide outfitter. Or two, it's called a hunter host. So that would mean you would have to hunt with me and I would, and I would host you and you would be my either it's a friend or family person. And the unfortunate part about that, you have to be with me. You can't, you can't just come here and then I like turn you loose. You have to have like one for one or can you host two hunters? I think I, it is one for one. I think it's one for one. We could be wrong on that. Yeah. If but, is listening. Yeah. So they might correct us on that, but I believe it's one for one. And, and you, you would have to fill out application. I have to fill out application. And then we got to basically tell them what. I'll be, want. I'll be first in line just before anybody says anything. <laughs> is so, it, is it draw or is it over the counter? You buy tags over the counter. You get a general tag. Yeah. Over the counter. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Almost every there's a few really good spots uh, that you need to draw, but for archery, shit, it's almost everywhere. It's yep. general. Yeah, I'm putting my cell phone number in the chat here, and we can <laughs> yeah. talk. Yeah. I want to be number two behind Louis. <laughs> so, do you have any? Do you have any idea what it costs for uh, for somebody oh, not from Canada hunt uh, a tag? It's it's super cheap, sixty dollars, I think. I, I can. If you give me, if Lee talks, I can double yeah. check it right now, probably, and I can get you a. So, oh, is, go ahead, Lee. We're oh, fixing to take. We're like, fixing to take out bros north of the border, fellas. <laughs> go ahead, Lee. <laughs> How many hunting friends you got? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're hunting with an outfitter, uh, an elk hunt up here is, you know, five to six thousand dollars. Yeah. The, the really cool part I always like to tell people about hunting in Alberta, particularly northern Alberta, um, is that you will get an elk, a moose, a whitetail, a bear, and a mule deer tag in your pocket, and you have no idea what the hell you're going to come home with at the end of the night. You go elk. <laughs> That's cool. A lot of it, Yeah. Well, the, see, the cool part about that is, is that in, in, when we hear something like $6,000, um, and you try to equate that with the states, it's getting in the states so that just to get a tag is yeah. going to cost oh, you man. anywhere from four thousand up anymore. So the the idea that you can get a tag there so inexpensive um, allows them to charge that amount and still make a really good profit. You know yeah. where they're at. Whereas here, if we were to charge six thousand dollars for a hunt, 
um, and you're paying 4,000 for a tag, there's not a whole lot on the end for the work that you're putting in. So yeah, that's why prices get jacked up. So that's really cool. And so you can now, can you hunt moose in that over, you know, with a friend like that or over the counter as well? Same thing. The moose in Alberta is a little bit different. There's way more draw zones, but there is definitely quite a few, um, uh, over the counter archery zones. Do y'all have private land that y'all hunt for moose too? Yeah, neither of us have ever got huge into moose hunting. I've killed one on private. Uh, it's tougher. I'd say killing a moose in Alberta is tougher than elk. Yeah. So what you were talking about, like with an outfitter, you said with an outfitter, you get a, an elk, a moose and, and all of this. So when you go with an outfitter, you don't have to draw? No, no, that each outfitter has their own area and they're given a certain number of tags to sell. They can sell them to Albertans if they want, but they don't because they don't want Albertans learning their public land spots. Um, so they want you guys to come up. Ah, well, we'll try to help out. Absolutely, man. <laughs> we got some. We got some grander plans to, to yeah. hunt moose and elk now in Canada for sure. So let, let's let's talk about. Let's jump back and go back. We were talking about hunt, amount of hunters. How much? In what way does your hunting pressure, how much does that affect your elk on public land? What behaviors do you see? Do they end up leaving or do they just shut up? No, they'll move. They'll move hard. And some of the areas, they'll, they'll, they'll be gone and they'll, they'll almost pattern it a little bit, but they'll be gone. If you push them, they'll gone, be gone sometimes three, five, seven days. And then they rotate back in. We'll come back in slowly here and there, but yeah, I, 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 when I've hunted the public lands and they're heavily pushed, they're gone. And, and I've sat there for five, six days after not seeing her. Same here. Them. Same yeah. here, Joe. I mean, we saw it in Colorado when y'all went back. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. All that pressure was on during archery season, blew them the hell out. And then for the other season, blew them out. Yeah. Now, your weather there. What is your weather like in September? What are you experiencing? Everything. Yeah, like we've had a lot of September days in snow and a lot of September days in miserable wind. And um, you also get, if we're going to talk Fahrenheit, we're up in hundreds. Yeah, like days where if you kill an elk, you're, you're crapping your pants trying to get it out. ASA. Like you just cool down. Yeah, and then, but it, it usually the mornings start at around 32, 32 degrees. Mm-hmm. And by the middle of the, the day, you're, you're up close to a hundred. Dude, you're, you guys aren't hunting in Canada. You're hunting in New Mexico. Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> the cool thing about where we hunt in New Mexico in a lot of places in Colorado is the elevation. That elevation tends to keep some of your heat down, but I'm uh, not this past year. I mean, we were sitting at a, what, what was our camp, Joe? 9,000 feet or yeah. something like yeah. that. And, uh-huh. Man, it was 90 degrees, you know, midway through our Sunlight. hunt. Yeah. 85, 90 degrees is brutal, you know. So Eric, have you, you heard of Does that help different? y'all position your elk too? The, the heat? Does it position them more around water holes and stuff mm-hmm. like that? Yeah. And then, and they'll hold up hard. Like usually when they, uh, you won't even see them come out late evening, they'll be just they'll hold up in the timber and they will not come out. Yeah. And, uh, same thing in the mornings. They'll, they'll be, they'll be heading back into the timber early before mm-hmm. sun rises and you don't get to see them because it's yeah. so hot. So Eric, have you heard anything any different? Like just in this discussion? Of, yeah. No, yeah. Like not, when we're talking no, about the elk no, and what no, they're no. talking about behaviors and everything, I mean, it, doesn't it sound like they're hunting New Mexico, bud? 
Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I think is even like when he's talking about that thick cover, it kind of reminded me of like if you were hunting roses in parts of Oregon. Yeah. You know, you just, you know, they, I, I, I don't know if that's true. And I wanted to ask you that, like in that really thick country, do those animals tend to stay in that area a lot more like a rosy? They don't travel as far. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it's all really the same. Yeah. You can spook an elk out a mile, but they're still around. You know, you can go back the next day and maybe call them back. So your situation is different than what marked with the pressure. They don't pressure out as far away. Yeah, well, largely up where I am in northern Alberta, too, it's a lot of logging roads. So uh-huh. you can uh, cool. a lot of the timber just by driving. So, Or on quads, there's a lot of pipelines, too. Uh, so even if they are trying to get away, you can still access them. Most places they'll go. Yeah, yeah, very, very – now let me ask you about in your thick area. And when you are in timber – um and not necessarily the dark timber, because the way I'll describe the dark timber is that it's pretty devoid underneath the trees of grass. There's a lot of gray um, because it, it is that dark timber where they like to bed. But in other thicker timber, we have a tendency for, in our areas, for our limb cover to be fairly bare for like the first five feet and then really be thick up above. Now, now in Oregon, they're extremely thick on the ground and you have to be standing up to see over stuff in order to get a shot. Which of those two most fit your scenario? Um, more so the first one where you're more impacted by vertical trees than the horizontal part of the tree. But I mean, you can also walk a hundred yards and it's a completely different scenario. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, it sounds very, very similar. Yeah. You know, when you, when you were talking about, you know, your, your places with the desert and the breaks in the trees and then north up with more trees, you almost described Arizona to a T yeah. <laughs> in some areas out there. Yeah, Eric. Yeah, I had a couple of questions around what, what, how does fire impact it, your hunting areas? And then maybe like, I don't know how they are with cattle. You know, they lease a lot of land out to ranchers out here where they're running a lot of cattle. And do you see that in your hunting area as well? Yeah. Or beetle kills, thing, you know, a lot of beetle kill? Yeah, what, we, what we'll find is if there's cattle. And so in a lot of the public land, it's, it's leasing, leasing graces. So mm-hmm. Right, right. Everywhere. So they're, they're used to them. Um, they, they don't mingle though. Like you won't have a herd of cows and then a herd of, they don't like, they won't stick together. They, they kind of, uh, they're, they're competing for the same food same source. Grass, so. yeah. Right. Yeah. So Depending on the amount of, uh, animals that are grazing that area. Yeah. Sure. And, and then as for forest fires, I find, um, we, we've had a lot lately and I think when it blows through initially, the animals are gone. And, yeah. But after it's such a, Right back. Rich, because like rich environments, like all that. How quick will they come back? How how quick will they come back to a burn area? As soon as it starts blooming, when you when the nutrients are back and the grass is starting to grow, they're back back in there. And you'll see the fallen burnt timber; they're still in there, and and they're eating, and they love it. They love that area. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I, I tell you, man, uh, that I, I think the more I listen to this conversation, the more it supports the idea that elk are elk are elk, you know, in places. And 
there's a lot of similarities and everything has to do with terrain as far as strategy. When you're in open areas, you can do more glassing. You can pick things out. Um, you can stalk more. You can shut up more. You know, the thicker the timber it is, then the way you got to locate them is you got to get them to sound off in some way or you're going to move and have them come into you so that you can, you know, while they're moving in silent. It's so it, it sounds so familiar in all of that that, uh, I, I think this was a great conversation to kind of support that idea, you know, of, of elk or elk everywhere. Elk or elk. Yeah. Can I ask just one more thing. I'm just curious. Yeah. Sure. How are you guys with your e-scouting? I know you guys know your area real well, but, um, you guys do a lot of e-scouting as well. That's a good question. Yeah. We use iHunter a fair bit, but we, iHunter, I guess is like your Onyx. That's what mm-hmm. we have up oh, here. It's called iHunter. Okay. Yeah. iHunter. Yeah. Uh, but we, we know our areas pretty well. We yeah. kind of just use it to find our way back to the truck more than anything. Yeah. yeah. The GPS, <laughs> right? Yeah. I'm looking at in reach as well, and it's all topographical. So, yeah, we don't do a lot of like hours on ends of looking at maps and, and planning that way. Um, we, we, really, yeah. we find elk and we go where the elk are. We don't find an area to go look for. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm going to ask you this. When you guys have a lot of people in the woods, what is the go-to type of area that you're trying to look for and go to to get into elk that you're not going to get into other hunters? I find a lot of hunters are lazy, and uh, we have a lot of truck hunters in Alberta. And even elk, they'll, they'll hunt by truck and they'll glass from their truck. We're Me and Lee, we're foot we'll get on our foot and we're hot, we're hiking and we'll get up. And like I said, I, I've always been taught animals if they're getting, they're running away from you. They're not running down, they're running up. So if you can get up, like that's, that's your vantage point to begin with. And, and we're, 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 we're up early and we're, we're hitting the path before the, the, the lazy people and we're up there and we're, we're working hard. What about in your northern country there, bud? What is what is something what is your go to strategy a place to look for when you've got guys in the woods? Yeah, that's a tough question up there because everybody who's hunting is also a farmer who lives right there and they all know exactly where the elk are. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to be honest with you, a lot of that comes down to just local know-how. They know where they are and getting your truck out early enough that you're parked in a spot before someone else. Are you finding them in the same places every year? Yeah, pretty similar. Yeah. They love around the creek bottoms. They love that. Um, you find a place with a big alfalfa field, there's going to be elk somewhere near there. Um, yeah, very similar. Yeah, awesome, man. Guys, man, that I, uh, great conversation. I sure appreciate it. Absolutely. I mean, we got to, we got to learn about some broadheads. We got to do that. Um, we got to learn a little bit about Canada. And one thing I'll ask and you. I is got that, an invitation to go hunting. <laughs> 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 it's actually 20, it's 27 Say that again. For the hunter host license. 27 bucks. 27? $27. So what's that? I, I, I can even handle that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know, Joe. To... You're pretty tight, bro. You gotta, you gotta tell us. See, yeah, I have no problem with that, but you, you may have some issues with that because you know, Eric, Eric was talking about he doesn't like to wear cotton, dude. You know, man, if I, if I can get, if I can get 10 shirts from Walmart at seven bucks a piece, I'm set. I got one per day, man. So yeah. I don't have to there worry. You go. Yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> um, what about getting the meat back over the border? Is that difficult? Well, I've done a lot of hunting in America mm-hmm. and brought meat into Canada, obviously Harder. the other way, but it's never been an issue. Uh, you have weapons? your base weapons, nope. uh, no handguns. Yeah. No, no handguns. Handgun. Compound bows or bows, as simple as you don't need to have any paperwork. You just show up and you tell them what you have and why you have it and what you're doing. And they're like, great, enjoy. Uh, as for a firearm, you need to fill out a firearms declaration. And it's you can just go to the Border Services uh, website. It's super simple. I believe it's like four pages. You bring that with you. And no issues. I haven't heard anybody who have issues if you fill out your paperwork properly. Are just, your borders back open from COVID? Uh, if you have a vaccine, vaccine. you got a vax card. Okay. But if you are traveling to and from between Canada and America with a gun, just book yourself a really long layover. Um, I know this because my dad does a lot of international traveling with a rifle, and he avoids going through the States as much as he can. He always gets through. They just take a very, very, very long time to get you and i hear i hear that if i hear if you're venezuelan when you get to the border they send you right back down (laughs) yeah (laughs) he ain't coming to canada son they're gonna ship him straight back they they need you know they need some refugees up there man of course he can use his spanish passport probably you know it's like i'm sure those guys will be willing to open open their borders for people like you know need it like us venezuelans who don't have a <laughs> democracy in our country anymore yeah. man so. they're gonna look they're gonna look at luis's card and go fernando valenzuela yeah 24 <laughs> wins with the dodgers hey, fernando valenzuela get out of here oh man <laughs> close us out gilbert guys what a great show man lee uh, Mark, fantastic having you guys on there. Sounds like y'all got it dialed in in Canada. And, uh, we're really excited about the broadhead that you brought to Absolutely. us. And, uh, and we're going to be having more discussions about that as well, man. Guys, if you like what we're doing, please subscribe, rate and review. You got to go to Apple podcast or iTunes to review us and you can check out more elk hunting content at elkbros.com. And also guys, just a reminder. First of all, for our Elk Bros Hunt giveaway, go to elkbros.com slash hunt or elkbrosadventures.com, our new webpage, and uh, you can find out how to enter for a giveaway on our, our hunt and come hunt with the Elk Bros this September. Come on. That's right. We yeah, will have Canada, everybody in camp now. That. I'm yeah. telling you, we're so excited to have yeah. one of our grinders in. You hear Joe with a big deal? I mean, look, it's going to be uh, epic. And listen, you guys on the gram, on the, on the social media posts, please like us, share, uh, please do all of that. That's going to really help our cause to get it out to, to more, more, more people. And if you like, you know, if any of our listeners would like any of our, their questions answered on our show, just send your questions to info at elkbros.com. That's I-N-F-O at elkbros.com. And like we say down here in the Lone Star State, husbands, kiss your wives, wives, kiss your husbands. Hug your babies, keep your broad head sharp and your powder dry. And we'll see you next week right here on Blue Collar Elk Hunting. Yes, sir. What's next? What's next? And and guys, for all our grinders out there, here's some more music for my brother Tony Wintrip to close out our show. Peace, peace, everybody. Take a good look at me. I'll be gone for a while in the backcountry where peace of mind is destiny. 
It's a trail with a pack on my back, mountain house meals in a baby sack. I'm gone for a while, baby, take a good look at me. Top with the highest peak and no backdrop. It's a long way up from here and a long way down to my freedom, my freedom, freedom in the woodlands, wild and free. My freedom, my freedom, freedom from the chain that can't hold. Listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.